If you would take your Bibles and turn with me to the Old Testament book of Zephaniah. If you start in the New Testament and go left, you go Matthew, Malachi, Zechariah, Zephaniah. If I were a bet man, I bet you it's been a long time since you heard a sermon from the book of Zephaniah, but that's exactly what you'll hear in the time that we have together tonight. If you're new to our Wednesday night meeting, what we've been doing for the past several months is just a week-by-week overview of a single book of the Bible each week. Zephaniah is said in verse 1 to have been a word from the Lord that came to to Zephaniah, son of Cushai, son of Gedaliah, son of Amariah, son of Hezekiah, in the days of Josiah, son of Ammon, king of Judah. You may remember something of the life and leadership of Josiah, who was the boy king in the nation of Judah. He was among those handful of good kings in the kingdom of Judah that led faithfully. And under Josiah's reign, Judah experienced a great awakening, a great revival, and the renewal of the book of the law among them. In fact, if I could just read a brief passage for you from 2 Kings chapter 22, this will give you an idea of the extent to which revival was experienced in the land of Judah. The Bible says in, in 2 Kings 22:8, Hilkiah the high priest told Shaph and the court secretary, I have found the book of the law in the Lord's temple. And he gave the book to Shaphan who read it. And Shaphan, the court secretary, went to the king and reported, Your servants have emptied out the money that was found in the temple and have put it in the hand of those doing the work, those who oversee the Lord's temple. Then Shaphan, the court secretary, told the king, Hilkiah, the priest, has given me a book. And Shaphan read it in the presence of the king. And when the king heard the words of the book of the law, he tore his clothes. And he commanded Hilkiah, the priest, to Hikam, son of Shaphan, Achbor, son of Micaiah, Shaphan, the court secretary, and the king's servant, Hesiah, Go and inquire of the Lord for me, the people, and all Judah about the instruction in this book that has been found. For great is the Lord's wrath that is kindled against us because our ancestors have not obeyed the words of this book in order to do everything written about us. Now, Zephaniah is prophesying presumably early in the time of Josiah's reign because clearly this revival, this awakening, this uh, renewal of interest in the book of the law, this rediscovery of the book of the law has not yet happened when Zephaniah says what he says here. But that passage in 2 Kings gives us an idea of the extent to which the people of Judah had drifted from God. Now remember, the Bible, the Old Testament, was entrusted to the people of Israel. And they've come to a place in their history where there has been such neglect of the Bible that they have quite literally lost the Bible. There's an effort at doing some reconstruction in the temple. There's a temple remodel project. And in the process of gathering the funds collected for this reconstruction project, they discover the book of the law. And and they hear it with fresh ears. They they hear it with fresh eyes. And they receive it with, with fresh hearts. And they gladly do what the law instructs them to do. Now, can you imagine a scenario in which not, not, it's not that people are ignorant of the law. They can't find it. They have, they have mislocated the Bible. And that's exactly the set of circumstances into which Zephaniah writes. He preaches in the early part of Josiah's reign in Judah, that boy king who led the people of Israel out of idolatry. After all of the idolatry that they'd experienced, a big part of Josiah's reign was eradicating um, idolatry in the land of Judah. 
He preaches a message of judgment against sin, and not just Judah's sin, but the sins of the nation as well. So I'm going to show you three key themes in the book of Zephaniah, but sort of to get our bearings here, I want us to begin reading in verse number two of chapter one. The Bible says, I will completely sweep away everything from the face of the earth. This is the Lord's declaration. I will sweep away man and animal. I will sweep away the birds of the sky and the fish of the sea and the ruins along with the wicked. I will cut off mankind from the face of the earth. This is the Lord's declaration. I will stretch out my hand against Judah and against all the residents of Jerusalem. I will cut off every vestige of Baal from this place, the names of the pagan priest along with the priest, that is, the pagan priest and what should have been the true priest, those who bow and worship on the rooftops to the heavenly host, those who bow and pay loyalty to the Lord but also pledge loyalty to Milcom, and those who turn back from following the Lord, who don't seek the Lord or inquire of him, be silent in the presence of the Lord God, for the day of the Lord is near. Indeed, the Lord has prepared a sacrifice. He's consecrated his guest. On the day of the Lord's sacrifice, I will punish the officials, the king's sons, and all who are dressed in foreign clothing. On that day, I will punish all who skip over the threshold, who fill their master's house with violence and deceit. On that day... This is the Lord's declaration. There'll be an outcry from the fish gate, a wailing from the second district, and a loud crashing from the hills. Wail, you residents of the hollow, for all the merchants will be silenced. All those loaded with silver will be cut off. And at that time, I'll search Jerusalem with lamps and punish the men who settle down comfortably, who say to themselves, the Lord will not do good or evil. Their wealth will become plunder and their houses a ruin. They will build houses but never live in them, plant vineyards but never drink their wine. The great day of the Lord is near, near and rapidly approaching. Listen, the day of the Lord, then the warrior's cry is bitter. That day is a day of wrath, a day of trouble and distress, a day of destruction and desolation, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and blackness, a day of trumpet blast and battle cry against the fortified cities and against the high corner towers. I will bring distress on mankind and they will walk like the blind because they've sinned against the Lord. Their blood will be poured out like dust and their flesh like dung. Their silver and their gold will not be able to rescue them on the day of the Lord's wrath. The whole earth will be consumed by the fire of his jealousy. For he will make a complete, yes, a horrifying end of all the inhabitants of the earth. It's here in chapter 1 that, that, jo that Zephaniah rather really deals with the idea of God's judgment against the nation of Judah. All of Judah, he says, in Jerusalem from the fish gate to the second district, to the hollow outside the city, there is not an inhabitant of Jerusalem that can escape the wrath of God as it is to come. All over Judah, not just in the city of Jerusalem, but all over the nation of Judah, judgment is coming against the sin of the people, against those who feign the worship of God, who, who fake it, who worship or at least go through the ritual practices of worship while at the same time paying their pledge or their allegiance to whatever God of their locality might look like or be, who say Yahweh is God in one, in one breath and in the next Milcom is God. All of Judah is going to come under God's judgment but for repentance. Chapter 2 of Zephaniah really focuses on God's judgment against the nations. It is not as though the sin of the nations has been overlooked. In fact, God will bring judgment against the nations as well. 
there's often this balance in the Bible where God deals first with the chosen people, Israel or Judah, and sometimes Israel and Judah together, and then in the next breath deals with the judgment that will come against the nations. I think that's reflective of the missionary interest of God throughout the Old and New Testament. The function of Israel and Judah's faithfulness was to be a blessing to the nations, was to be a lighthouse, it was to be a means of God's drawing all people unto himself. Even when God called Abraham, the purpose of Abraham's blessedness was that the nations through him might be blessed. At least a part of the reason that the nations found themselves in such distress, involved in such paganism, and given to such violence is because Israel had failed in its responsibility to be the lighthouse that God had called them to be. In any event, the sins of the nations would not be overlooked any more than the sins of Israel would be overlooked. And then in chapter 3, Zephaniah does what every prophet does because it reflects the grace that God has for us. He holds out promise. In spite of the judgment that is to come, there is the promise of a great restoration. Look at verse 8 of chapter 3. This is the Lord's declaration. Until the day I rise up for plunder, for my decision is to gather nations to assemble kingdoms in order to pour out my indignation on them, all my burning anger, for the whole earth will be consumed by the fire of my jealousy. This is, by the way, the second time that God has referred to himself as jealous. He says in verse 9, For I will then restore pure speech to the peoples, so that all of them may call on the name of Yahweh and serve him with a single purpose. From beyond the rivers of Cush, my, supplica my supplicants, my dispersed people, will bring an offering to me. On that day, you'll not be put to shame because of everything you've done in rebelling against me. For then, I'll remove your proud, arrogant people from among you, and you will never again be haughty on my holy mountain. I will leave a meek and humble people among you, and they will take refuge in the name of Yahweh. The remnant of Israel will no longer do wrong or tell lies. A deceitful tongue will not be found in their mouths, but they will pasture and lie down with nothing to make them afraid. Sing for joy, daughter Zion. Shout loudly, Israel. Be glad and rejoice with all your heart, daughter Jerusalem. The Lord has removed your punishment. He has turned back your enemy. The King of Israel, Yahweh, is among you. You need no longer fear him. On that day it will be said to Jerusalem, Do not fear, Zion. Do not let your hands grow weak. Yahweh, your God, is among you, a warrior who saves. He'll rejoice over you with gladness. He'll bring you quietness with his love. He will delight in you with shouts of joy. I will gather those who've been driven from the appointed festivals. There'll be a tribute from you and a reproach on her. Yes, at that time, I will deal with all who afflict you. I will save the lame and gather the scattered. I will make those who were disgraced throughout the earth receive praise and fame. At that time, I'll bring you back. Yes, at the time, I will gather you. I will give you fame and praise among all the peoples of the earth when I restore your fortunes before your eyes. Yahweh has spoken. There are two features that all of the prophets share in common. There's always a word of judgment. Sometimes I think in our annual Read the Bible programs that gets a little labor intensive for us. But there is always coupled with the promise of judgment against sin, the promise of God's restoration and grace. The promise that a remnant will be restored. A remnant will remain as a testimony to God's faithfulness to his people. Truly, not all of Israel is Israel. 
But to true Israel, God's faithfulness is unending. We're able to say with the Apostle Paul, when we are faithless, he is faithful. Now let me show you quickly these three themes in the book of Zephaniah. And the three themes are going to have us moving a little bit all over the place. Here's the first one. God rules the world. I know that's like theology 101, right? That God is over all creation. But it, it may be the theological truth that settles the troubled heart more effectively than any other. On the worst of days, for me personally, the knowledge that God is on the throne and that all things are in his control under his feet, it settles an anxious soul. Like when I'm worried about the decisions that my children will make moving forward, will they remain faithful to Jesus through the difficult years of teenage life? Will they choose godly wives for themselves? Will they remain faithful even into adulthood when the difficulties of grown-up life come? When I worry about those things, I'm reminded that God rules all things, that the whole world is in his hands, and it settles my soul. When I think about our little boy and that whole crazy mess with adoption and the insanity that is Child Protective Services in the state of Mississippi, when I, I, I think that, that even powers that are beyond my reach are still well beneath the authority of my God, and it settles my soul. Th th this is Theology 101, but it is among the most comforting, the most encouraging, and the most refreshing of doctrines in all of the Bible. From the very outset of Zephaniah, it is clear that God is indeed in control. In fact, if you'll go through and just underline all of the locales that are mentioned, there are word for word by percentage, I think, at least it's my impression, more locations identified here than in most prophetic books of the Bible. It is clear here that all of Jerusalem and Judah, Ashdod and Ashkelon, the seacoast and its Cherethites, Canaan land and its Philistines, the Moabites and the Ammonites, Nineveh and Assyria and all the Assyrians, the nations all over the face of the earth, God rules it all. From the very outset of Zephaniah, God is in charge. Whether it be those who would bow and humbly submit themselves to his authority or those who would defiantly shake their fist in his face, God is still sovereign Lord over all mankind. There are no nations that have escaped the attention of our God. There are no people who have slipped the grasp of our all-powerful God. He rules all. Who can say to him, what have you done? Or who can stay his hand? And then, and then there's this picture in the book of Zephaniah of God being near them, God being in control of all things. And in one context, it's a fearful thing. And in another context, it's a moving, refreshing, exciting, and encouraging thing. Look to verse number 5 of chapter 3. This is in the context of Jerusalem's iniquity, her injustices and the judgment that is to come against her the bible says here the righteous lord is in her he does no wrong he applies his justice morning by morning he does not fail at dawn yet the one who does wrong knows no shame zephaniah says god is in your midst god is with you and in injustice that is a dreadful thing that is a fearful thing if you are rebelling against God, if you have set your heart on disobedience, 
You may feel for a season that your sin has escaped the attention of God. You may convince yourself that there is some justification for your sin, but there is an all-seeing God in heaven who has been pleased to draw near, and he sees the very thoughts and intentions of our hearts. That, in the moment of sin, is a dreadful thought. But then in the conclusion of Zephaniah, as he encourages the people of Judah at the promise of restoration, at the hope of reconciliation with this God who in chapters 1 and 2 is vengeful in his wrath against our sin, that there might be reconciliation. There is this mention yet again that he is among us. Look to chapter 3 and verse 15. The Lord has removed your punishment. He has turned back your enemy. The King of Israel, Yahweh, is among you. You no longer need to fear him. It's reiterated in verses 16 and 17. On that day, it'll be said to Jerusalem, don't fear Zion. Don't let your hands grow weak. Yahweh, your God, is among you, a warrior who saves. In chapter 2, he is a warrior who brings judgment. He comes wielding the sword of judgment against the sinful people. But in chapter 3, he is the warrior who draws near in salvation, wielding the sword not against his people, but in our protection. Indeed, God has drawn near. God rules over all things. That includes the minute details of our life. He is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. Zephaniah makes it clear that nothing has escaped the attention of our God. One famous theologian said, from the highest heights to the deepest depths, there is not one square inch over all of God's creation over which our Lord Jesus Christ does not say, mine. It's all his. He rules it, every square inch, every random cell. There is not a rogue atom in all of the creation over which Jesus is not Lord. And that, brothers and sisters, should still the anxious soul. Here's a second key theme in the book of Zephaniah. God is a jealous God. And what the Bible means by that is that God desires our worship. God is jealous for our worship. I think we dealt with this a couple of weeks ago in talking about this concept, why it is that it is appropriate that God would be jealous when the Scripture makes it clear that jealousy or envy on our part is a sinful thing. God is not a megalomaniac in desiring our worship. Rather, He knows what is best for us. He knows better than anyone else because He knows all things that He is the only suitable object for our worship that we are satisfied in the worship of God, that our fulfillment and our joy is found in Him and in Him alone. It would be morally improper if God did not desire our worship, if He was not jealous for our worship because He desires what is best for us. It is best for us to be in the worship of God. And so it's clear all over the Bible, not just in Zephaniah, but especially here in Zephaniah, that God is indeed a jealous God that he desires the worship of every man, woman, and child of every tribe, tongue, and nation. Look at chapter 1, verses 12 and 13. Here it's clear that God desires the worship of even the complacent and the apathetic. And boy, there's a strong dose of this in the Bible Belt. The Bible says, And at that time I will search Jerusalem with lamps and punish the men who settle down comfortably who say to themselves, the Lord will not do good or evil. Their wealth will become plunder and their houses a ruin. They will build houses but never live in them, plant vineyards but never drink their wine. 
In chapter 1, even earlier, in verses 4 through 6, we find that God desires the worship of even the double-minded. Those who would say the right things with their mouths, who would sing the right hymn from the right hymn book in the right kind of church context under the right denominational banner. But in reality, their hearts are far from God. In verse 4, the Bible says, I will stretch out my hand against Judah and against all the residents of Jerusalem. I will cut off every vestige of Baal from this place, the names of pagan priests along with the priest, those who bow in worship on the rooftops to the heavenly host, those who bow and pledge loyalty to the Lord, but also pledge loyalty to Milcom, and those who turn back from following the Lord, who do not seek the Lord or inquire of him. God is jealous for our worship. In chapter 1 and verse, 13, verse 18, rather, we learn that God desires the worship. He was jealous for the worship of the wealthy and the self-satisfied. He says here, their silver and their gold will not be able to rescue them on the day of the Lord's wrath. The whole earth will be consumed by the fire of his jealousy. Now, if, if you've not seen the climate, the culture of Western Christianity diagnosed in these three statements, you simply do not have eyes to see or ears to hear. For those who are mixed between two opinions, straddling the fence, God desires their worship. He is jealous for their praise and their worship. For those who are self-satisfied in their wealth, living at a level of comfort that affords them all that they could ever hope or dream or imagine to have and give little thought to God, God desires their worship. For those who are outright hypocritical, God desires their worship. For the apathetic, God desires their worship. For those who say all the right things but in their hearts are far from God, God desires their worship and he will move heaven and earth to have their worship one way or another. There will come a day when either in salvation or in judgment, every knee will bow and pay him the worship that he alone is due. In chapter 2 and verses 4 through 9, we learn that he is jealous for the worship even of those who would persecute or do violence against his people. Verse 4 says, For Gaza will be abandoned and Ashkelon will become a ruin. Ashdod will be driven out at noon and Ekron will be uprooted. Woe, inhabitants of the seacoast nation of the Cherethites, the word of the Lord is against you, Canaan, land of the Philistines. I will destroy you until there's no one left. Seacoast will become pasture lands with caves for shepherds and folds for sheep. The coastland will belong to the remnant of the house of Judah. They'll find pasture there. They'll lie down in the evening among the house of Ashkelon, for the Lord their God will return to them and restore their fortunes. I've heard the taunting of Moab and the insults of the Ammonites who've taunted my people and threatened their territory. Therefore, as I live, this is the Lord's declaration, the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel. Here, here, here God desires to receive the glory, praise, and honor of even those people who mistreat and abuse his own people. Now, that's kind of wild if you'll really pause there to think for a moment. And it's, it's so easy to make enemies out of neighbors to make enemies out of those who've assumed themselves to be your enemies. And what Jesus has called us to do, if you didn't learn anything in our series in the Sermon on the Mount, is to pray for our enemies and those who treat us spitefully or persecute us. God is in the business of seeking out and saving our enemies. This even happens within the context of the church. You, know, you, you guys don't see this for the most part. 
uh, you're aware of these sorts of things, but they're typically the kind of things that's handled among the pastors. But from time to time, like it's, it's kind of the practice now among those who are more radically opposed to the things of God to show up and to feign interest in a church or interest in the gospel only to cause problems down the line. And it's usually clear, like, who they are, right? I mean, you see these sorts of things, and it'll revolve around, like, sexual ethics or even more generic types of things. And if we're not really careful, like, I've even caught myself in the last couple of days drifting in the direction of seeing or thinking of, of people who would do such things as enemies when, when our, our posture ought to be rather to pray that God would use even what is intended as evil against as followers of Jesus, right? Because our war is not against flesh and blood, but against powers and principalities of the air. Here, here the Bible is making it clear that God is jealous for the worship of those who despise him and his people. If you're following along here, by this point, you're catching my drift when I say that God is jealous for the worship of every man, woman, and child of every tribe, tongue, and nation. He's jealous for the self-assured who believe themselves to be safe. In chapter 2 and verse number 15, he describes a scenario where people live in such a level of security that they believe themselves to be all alone on an island. Nothing can happen to us out here. We're self-assured and self-satisfied. All is well for us. In chapter 3, verses 1 through 5, we have a situation where it's explained to us that God is jealous for the worship of his people who behave foolishly and know no shame. He says to Jerusalem, woe to that city that is rebellious and defiled, the oppressive city. She has not obeyed. She has not accepted discipline. She has not trusted in Yahweh. She has drawn near to God. She's had every advantage, and yet God is still desirous of the worship of the holy city. God desires even the worship of his people who are living in a condition of absolute foolishness. The message of Zephaniah is to come back, people of God, and to worship him who alone is worthy of your worship and praise. Come away from your foolishness. Come away from all that we've diagnosed of the people of Zephaniah's day, so much of which is true of people in our day and age. Come to Christ Come to Christ. For the people of God, come back to Christ. That is, in essence, the message of Zephaniah. There is further a word of instruction here, and this is the third and final theme. What do we do when judgment approaches? When you see judgment on the horizon or you find yourself under the preaching of a prophet who declares, as Zephaniah does here, that judgment is coming. Chapter 2, verses 1 and following provides us with some steps along the way. Verse 1 says, Gather yourselves together. Gather together, undesirable nation, before the decree takes effect and the day passes like chaff. Before the burning of the Lord's anger overtakes you, before the day of the Lord's anger overtakes you, seek the Lord, all you humble of the earth who carry out what he commands. Seek righteousness. Seek humility. Perhaps you'll be concealed on the day of the Lord's anger. He says, get together. But you're not just getting together for the sake of getting together. You're getting together for the sake of mutual encouragement. This is, in essence, the calling of a sacred assembly. Get together the game plan to repent in sackcloth and ashes as a people and to plea that God would turn back from the wrath 
that he's decreed against us. That's in essence what Zephaniah describes here. There is something, something about the assembling of God's people that has a certain power that cannot be replicated outside of that assembly. I know my time is like up, but and they always fuss at me in the back if I'm not on time, but they're going to have to fuss a little bit tonight because I've got a few things I want to say here. I have been encouraged and refreshed at the response of our people here in coming back from COVID. And I am burdened and distressed at so many people who would claim the name of Jesus who remain isolated from their local assemblies even as things are clearing up. And I get it, there are still circumstances under which there, there is a need for isolation and separation and all that. I'm not speaking to major health issues and those sorts of things, reasonable objections to being able to be back together. That's not what I'm re referencing here. You simply cannot replicate what we enjoy together as the body of Christ assembled by yourself or online or in a deer stand or on the lake or anywhere else for that matter. You just cannot replicate what God... There's something about the Spirit of God that lives in me connected together with the Spirit of God that lives in you and, and what God is often pleased to do in that communion, in that fellowship. I can't quantify it. I don't have good terminology to give expression to this, but there is, there is something that... And I mean this with all reverence. There is something magical that happens when the people of God gather together for the worship of God. Get together, Zephaniah says. Be together. Humble yourselves. Seek the Lord. This is the instruction that Zephaniah offers. Seek humility. And then he says, and I'm inclined to think that this is a key theme in Zephaniah, but one that we've not identified as a key theme in and of itself. He says in verse 3, in the conclusion of that verse, Seek righteousness, seek humility, Perhaps you will be concealed on the day of the Lord's anger. Perhaps you will be hidden on the day of the Lord's wrath. Perhaps you'll find a place of refuge on the day of the Lord's wrath. Now there's just this one mention of hiding or taking refuge here in Zechariah 2 and verse 3. Or Ze I keep calling him Zechariah. That's next week. Zephaniah is the prophet this week. And Zephaniah means the Lord hides or the Lord has hidden. Now, when a prophet's name is reflective of the message that follows, that's a God thing, and it's probably the kind of thing we ought to perk up and give our attention to. Now, we're reading Zephaniah with thousands of years of history between us and there. And what we have discovered through the lens of the gospel is that God indeed intends for us a place of refuge on the day of wrath. He often makes a place of refuge for his people. If you'll think about the way God moves in judgment, there's frequently a place of hiding for his people. In Genesis 6, it's an ark in which eight souls take refuge against the great flood of 40 days and 40 nights in which all of mankind, apart from those eight souls, were destroyed. In David's life, it was often a cave in which David took refuge and found protection. Various other times it was a wilderness journey that provided for a, a safe haven or a place of refuge. But for us who have looked on Jesus with eyes of faith, who have found salvation in the only begotten Son of God, our place of refuge, our hiding place is in 
Christ. God has made a place of refuge for us in his only son, Jesus. What Zephaniah says to us, what he said in essence to the people of Judah in his day, was to gather ourselves together to determine among ourselves that we will serve the Lord and the Lord only we will serve. To humble ourselves before God, to seek righteousness, and to take our hiding place, to take our refuge in none other than his only begotten son, Jesus Christ. Aren't you glad for a hiding place in the only son? Let's go to him in prayer. Father, thank you for your word and for its truth and the chance to meet together tonight. God, we thank you for your protection over us with this weather coming in and what appears to be stormy weather in other parts. God, you have watched over us yet again, and we pray that you would continue to do so throughout the remainder of this day. We thank you, Lord, that we don't dismiss without a purpose. I'm thankful that this gathering is about more than education and information, but about the transformation of our heart and our outlook on life in general. We thank you that we dismiss with a purpose to go into all the earth and to bear witness to what we have experienced in Jesus, to what Jesus has done on our behalf. Help us as we go, Lord, to tell others of what Christ has done for us and what by the power of the gospel he may do in them as well. We ask again that you would hear and attend to all the needs Lord, that we've expressed to you in prayer tonight. It was a comforting thought for me, thinking coming in, that our lead team is huddled elsewhere, praying on our behalf as we're gathered here. And you've reminded me, even as we've talked through this text, of an even more humbling and even more encouraging truth, that Jesus is at your right hand, praying on our behalf, even as we meet. Empower us, embolden us in the Spirit, God, Lord, help us to be the hands and feet of your Son here on earth. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen.